Clark, that cool. Good morning, please be seated. In the case of uh, Jennifer Basque against His Majesty the King, for the appellant Jennifer Basque, Robert K. McKee, for the respondent His Majesty the King, Patrick McGuinty, and Pierre Gionnet, for the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, it is a Frank. Uh, Mr. McKee. Morning, Chief Justice Wagner, Justices. Uh, this is an appeal. Uh, by the appellant, Jennifer Basque, of a decision of the Court of Appeal of New Brunswick dated November 10th, uh, 2021. And so my intention today is to proceed with the, the three questions that were set out in our factum that, uh, that frame the issue here today. At the end of the day, it boils down to one issue, but I'll, I'll restate those three questions. Uh, I, I stated that uh, did, did the sentencing judge commit an error of law by granting time served on a mandatory driving prohibition? Is time served on a driving prohibition pursuant to a defendant's interim release deductible from a mandatory minimum driving prohibition on sentence that would leave the remaining time to be served on sentence below the mandatory minimum? And does this court's direction on the issue in La Casse that dealt with a discretionary order on sentence that stated pretrial driving suspension must be deducted from the time on sentence, does that apply to mandatory minimum prohibition orders? And as I said, it boils down to one issue uh, the issue is that we're seeking here today is to apply credit to the pretrial driving prohibition to the time applied at sentencing and that the remaining time can fall below uh, the mandatory minimum. And this argument is based on principles of statutory interpretation. Uh, failing to apply uh, this, these principles can lead to results that are absurd and inconsistent with Parliament's intent in sections 259.1 of the Criminal Code. Uh, 718, 719, uh, that deal with the sentencing framework. Uh, you, say, you say in your factum that we, we don't have to deal with, um, uh, with provisions of provincial statutes, right, such as suspensions under provincial motor vehicle legislation. Um, and maybe you're right, but uh, does it follow from the arguments that you were making in respect of the imposition of bail conditions, does it also follow uh, that credit may have to be given for those provincial uh, suspensions in any event? I, uh, the, the argument there is that uh, there, there's, there's, you know, the, the federal and provincial jurisdictions, one being a, a provincially uh, regulated uh, statute, a re regulatory scheme under various provinces that deal with uh, impaired driving and they have, uh, you know, pre-trial uh, procedures, different provinces have different procedures. And I guess the argument is that those fall outside of the criminal code and that 
uh, a, a pretrial uh, prohibition under a court undertaking falls within the, the four corners of the criminal code and can be applied to a sentence. So we're not asking to apply provincial legislation to a federal, a federal statute. So, so at paragraph 48, you say, we agree it is contrary to Canadian constitutional principles to allow provincial legislation to effectively vary provisions of federal legislation. Would you concede then that to allow um, bail conditions um, uh, to be used in the way that you are using is to effectively vary the provisions of federal legislation? No, and we're, we're, not, we're not looking to vary the provisions of the federal legislation. The, the Section 259.1 that says uh, an offender must be, in this case, uh, prohibited from driving for not uh, less than one year, and the other uh, uh, provisions, you know, Section 719.1 that uh, calls for a sentence must be uh, established on, uh, you know, the date of sentencing. We're not, we're not calling... Well, let's talk, that's, that's, that's the one, it has to be on a go-forward basis. Yes. So why is what you're proposing not effectively undercutting that by backdating it? Well, we're, we're looking to apply credit... And indeed, that's what the trial judge did here. Yes, yes. We're, we're looking to, to apply credit based on principles of statutory interpretation without undercutting the legislation. And I think when you look at the overall framework of the sentencing provisions, uh, when you look at uh, jurisprudence uh, that dealt with pre-trial driving prohibitions to, to reconcile all of that uh, without modifying legislation, and we're not undercutting legislation. I, I believe that you can apply uh, the principles of statutory interpretation to allow for credit to, to be applied. Do you, support, do you support what the trial judge did here by backdating the driving prohibition? No, the provincial court backdating was, was, uh, was, not, uh, was not the proper course of action. That was corrected by the summary conviction uh, appeal court judge. And I, I believe that was the appropriate way to, to go. You can't backdate a, a sentence, Justice Brown, but you can, uh, you can apply, as this court's direction in Lacasse, uh, apply driving prohibition uh, pretrial to, to sentence. And I believe that the appropriate course of action was properly set out by the summary conviction appeal court judge. Mr. McKee, uh, you say that you want to uh, apply the principles of statutory interpretation to get the credit. Um, do you see any ambiguity in the statutory provisions that uh, you are asking us to interpret? Yes, I, I believe, uh, Justice Kasper, that when you look at the various uh, provisions of... Uh, How did you... Did I, did I get you the name? Sorry, it was uh, Justice Cote. Uh, <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going by the screen here. My I was apologies. wondering if I was vous the same person. Une, vous me faites une fleur, monsieur. <laughs> My apologies, I went with the screen and uh, it was my mistake, so... It's great, I always, uh, my dream is to become as, uh, learn as Justice Casirin, so. <laughs> Justice Cote, uh, could you restate your question? What... I want to know, because you said that you want to apply the principles of statutory interpretation, so I would like to know if you see any ambiguity in the, in the provisions that you are asking us to interpret. I, I, I believe there is an ambiguity, but when you look at... The, the, the principles of statutory interpretation, the, uh, I don't need to get, go through them all, but you know the, the modern approach uh, that has been outlined by, by Dreiger and it's been applied in Bell Express View, that uh, you know, we look at the overall context so, uh, and, and the, the scheme of the act. So when you look at that and you look at the provisions, yes, the ordinary meaning 
of the words, if you look precisely at 259.1, is that they must be prohibited for not less than a year, and that, it, you know, 719.1, that it commences. But when you look at the overall scheme of the Act, the different general uh, principles on sentencing, uh, the proportionality and parity principles. Well, that's why I, 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 I'm not sure there is ambiguity in this case. I mean, there's nothing that prevent the court, that prevented the court in La Casse to deduct the period of uh, suspension of the license, although there was no minimum sentence uh, applicable, but there was nothing in the code that would prevent that. There was nothing that would allow it, but nothing to prevent it. Isn't that the same situation here? Well, I, when you look at, at the, the general sentencing framework and, and how sentences have been applied generally, uh, there, there, to me there is ambiguity, to the appellant there's ambiguity that uh, it, the, the code is silent with respect to, to applying credit. And when we have uh, direction from... Well, that's not ambiguity. I mean, at the most, that may be, a, on, on your theory of the case, that could be a lacuna. It could be something that's missing. And then the question is, well, does that, does that, does that preclude? Um, is it precluded by some other section of the code? Or is it, does that mean that, that the common law... Um, principles subsist and, and can be fully operative here, but, but, but you'll have to explain to me, I'm, I'm with the chief, I'm not sure that, uh, on this point anyways, I'm not sure that there's an ambiguity there. I, I, I believe when you apply principles of statutory interpretation, when you go through the analysis, you, you look at the different outcomes that can be achieved here, you can find yourself in a situation where uh, you're, you're achieving uh, different results for different offenders, but... Uh, well, that happens all the time in sentencing. How does that... How does well, that... The, the, the principles of sentencing with respect to, you know, parity and, and proportionality, I think, are important, and that like offenders should get the same sentence, but, but uh, you know, you should be... But, Mr. McKee, you, you say clearly in your outline of argument, and it seems like a sensible place to start, that reading 259 and 719, that first, the mandatory minimum of one year prohibition applies at sentencing, and second, the prohibition that's imposed as a sentence commences as of the sentencing. And for there, there you see no ambiguity, right? In the, in the ordinary in meaning, in so the ordinary meaning of, of the words, there would be there would be no ambiguity, but when you when you look at the overall uh, principles of statutory interpretation, when you take into the, the context, the overall scheme of the act, you're achieving, you know, different results in, in, in well, life is, situations. Isn't the problem what comes after? I mean, couldn't the appellant acknowledge your first two points and say, okay, uh, a one-year prohibition is a mandatory minimum, it must be imposed at sentence, and it is, sentence commences at that moment. But I still see room for credit. And then there's the debate, where does that room come from? Isn't that where the, isn't that what we're really here talking about? Or, or I mean, that's what, that seems to me where the dissenting judge saw room and you, I'm not quite sure whether you, now you see room because there's an ambiguity at that second stage. Where, where are you at exactly? Well, when you look at the, the principles of statutory interpretation and taking the, ma the, the modern approach, 
It requires that words of an act are to be read in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense harmoniously within the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the intention of Parliament. So that's when we're looking at all of those items while reading, yes, if you, if you pull out the ordinary meaning of the words without looking at the overall uh, scheme of the act that must work harmoniously together. You was the majority judge wrong in his application of the, sta the principles of statutory interpretation? Yes, respectfully, the appellant is putting forward that, yes, based on these principles of statutory interpretation, as set out, that was a quote from, from Bell Express View and, and Elmer Dreider's uh, definitive formulation uh, for construction of statutes, that it's the modern approach. You read the, the words, yes, you take them in the ordinary sense, but you have to apply it to the overall scheme. And I believe, we believe, the, the appellant, that there is room to apply credit, as this court directed in, in Lacasse, well, that's the point, Mr. McKee. Your, your starting point is that Lacasse is correctly decided, correct? Yes. And Lacasse doesn't rely on a statutory provision to provide credit. It relies on a common law rule. That's, that's your position, right? Uh, well, it, uh, it's... It, it, which is, which is you know, well established even before the criminal code, uh, put in these schemes for what's uh, permitted and what isn't permitted. I think, the, as I understand the, the position when you're relying on Lacasse, 259.1a doesn't preclude any principle of credit uh, being provided. It provides for a minimum sentence, but doesn't expressly exclude uh, a common law principle of credit as was provided in Lacasse. So that's why you don't, you, it doesn't seem to me that you require ambiguity to be able to rely on Lacasse. Uh, if there is ambiguity, perhaps you get into the analysis of absurdity in, in WAST, the line of reasoning that Justice Arbour uh, enunciated and the unfairness and the, the uh, lack of proportionality depending on you know, the worst offenders being treated better than the... But you don't actually need to go to, uh, to, uh, to uh, ambiguity. You don't need to rely on ambiguity for your argument. If you're relying on 259.1a, it doesn't say anything about precluding credit in 259.1a, does it? No, and that's exactly what the appellant uh, is putting forward, is that it's silent with respect to, to credit. And then, you know, that's where we get into, well, how do we get around, I guess, the, the 7191, and then how do we get around, uh, you know, having... 7191 also doesn't preclude the possibility of credit, does it? No, it does not. Uh, so it seems to me you've got... The, your anchor is Lacasse stating a common law rule, that has not been expressly ex excluded anywhere in the criminal code. That, that would be, uh, in a nutshell, we, we, our, our starting point is Lacasse. This court, uh, Chief Justice Wagner, uh, expressly stated that pretrial driving uh, suspension prohibition must be deducted uh, from, from sentence. Yes, we were dealing with a discretionary order that the mandatory uh, doesn't come into play, and that's where uh, that's where my analysis is with respect to bringing it below the, 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 the floor of the, of the mandatory And you accept minimum. that the, the credit is discretionary, even though the language in Lacasse, uh, Chief Justice used the word must, it was in the context of the facts and circumstances in that case. Justice Gascon accepted that it was discretionary as well. You accept that it's discretionary, 
but in the circumstance of this case, it would lead to a deduction. But you, you don't say it absolutely in every instance must be deducted. It is a discretion of the, tr the sentencing judge, right? Well, I, I, on, the, on the point, uh, I would invite the court to, 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 to specify, because the wording used by Chief Justice uh, Wagner was uh, must, the word must was used, and uh, you know, as, a, as a practicing defense counsel, we would, we would encourage uh, the, the courts to apply that credit and, and to apply it consistently and to, to have clear direction. And our position is that it must be deducted and that it must not be uh, it so must it must be deducted. It, it's not a discretionary thing. Well, we're, we're seeking we're seeking clarification from the court, but the wording, well, your submission is that it must be. It's my submission is that, that it should be. It must be uh, must be deducted. Yes, the same way that uh, pretrial detention is is deducted. That it's codified. Do, do you? I mean, you can take whatever position you like, and we we have to receive your submissions. But I'm wondering whether another way of looking at it is to say that the sentencing judge is required to take it into account and as an exercise of discretion, parallel to incarceration before trial, can, can, can give credit and sort of parenthetically ordinarily does, of course. Yes, I, I think it's a, it's a fair comment to make that you know, we're, we're talking about uh, there's a range of sentence for first offense from one to one to three years. So th there's there's always discretion to, to give more than the minimum up to, a, to three years. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, it, take it into account in the in the in the exercise of their discretion in applying the sentence. So I, I think that that is a fair comment to make. But, but I, I would submit that based on based on Lacasse, based on uh, common law and based on uh, principles of statutory interpretation that courts should apply credit and that it is permissible to go below the, the, the floor, the min mandatory minimum floor uh, in cases to achieve coherence with the overall scheme of the act, the, the, the sentencing framework. Uh, I, I believe that it's appropriate to, to do, go that route. And you're not actually going below the mandatory minimum. You're just crediting some of the earlier uh, punishment on what is in effect punishment on remand, but you're not actually going below the mandatory minimum. In fact, you're respecting it. It's just well, a question it, of calculation. Where, how is it calculated? That, that's, ex that's exactly that, uh, and that's why uh, the appellant clearly stated in, in, in the factum that we're not challenging the constitutional validity of the, of the mandatory minimum. Uh, we're not put, put, putting forward a, a, a charter, a, a charter, uh, motion or breach, you know, to, to effectively give less. We're saying that the courts are giving the mandatory minimum, but like uh, Chief Justice Lamar in, in the Sharma decision that was quoted in, in La Caste, effectively the punishment started prior to, to conviction at the time that they were placed on that condition. And so, yes, the, the mandatory minimum in our position is, is accepted and credit applied does not, does not breach that mandatory minimum the argument that uh, if we adopt your interpretation, we are in fact expanding the limited scope of section 719.3. What do you answer to that? Well, that, that's, where, that's where it goes beyond common law and the statutory interpretation principles uh, step in to allow this court, like I said, the modern principle uh, of statutory interpretation to look at the overall scheme of the act and that you have 
you have this this section and, and even long before that section was codified courts routinely applied that credit uh, so I believe that's where you have to go beyond the common law to, to look at principles of statutory interpretation to, to how, apply. How do you get, how do you get beyond? I, I'm really I'm having trouble understanding really the, the route that you're inviting us to go down. Because earlier you said, and, and just in, in, on the heels of your answer to Justice Cote, that you accept the idea that the sentence commences when it's imposed. So it, it's not, is that right? You well, accept the, that, that idea at 719? Well, from a technical point of view, the sentence... Technical, I don't know what you mean by technical well, the, point of view. Technicality would mean, yes, on, the, on, on paper, the sentence starts on the date that it's issued by the, by the, the judge and that it's signed, and that's the, the date of sentence. The reaching back, the reaching back. Yes, we're, re we're reaching back because of... Well, we're reaching, we're crediting as opposed yeah, well, to reaching back. I mean, that, that's, that, I think that was the question that Justice Jamal asked you. Or, or, and that's his point. It, it, well, there's a qualitative difference. I mean, the, the, the Crown objects to the idea of running roughshod over, whether it's by backdating or by some kind of creative reading of 719, to, to, to reach back. No, no, you've got a mandatory minimum. That's clear. You've got, it's got to commence as of the date of the sentence. So the question then becomes, how do you, you, see the reaching back operating and what's the basis in law for that? The basis in law is, is principles of statutory interpretation, the ambiguity that is before us when we're looking at those provisions, when we look at how the general sentencing framework has been applied over the years, both, uh, both by jurisprudence, that's where the ambiguity lies and that we, we would be seeking to apply credit based on those principles. But are you saying that ambiguity is equivalent, the silence is equivalent to ambiguity? Because it's not. No. We it, don't have the 719 sub 3, so it's silent. It's not ambiguous. Well, it's, I would submit that it's ambiguous in the sense that when you look at the overall sentencing framework that where we've applied credit for pretrial detention and now we have Lacasse that says uh, we must uh, apply the pretrial driving prohibition that when you look at all of these different provisions in the, in the modern approach to statutory interpretation there is ambiguity in the sense that uh, th there's no clear intent with respect to what Parliament's intentions are when it comes to credit. Well for that's 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 not ambiguity it's just then a, it is or it isn't an open question but 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 let me ask you this section 719 sub 1 says a sentence commences when it's imposed, except where a relevant enactment otherwise provides. Is there a relevant enactment here? There is no other relevant enactment similar to what we have at 7.19.3, I believe, of the code with respect to pretrial detention. There is no relevant enactment, but we have... So where's the ambiguity? Where's, I mean, so, so, so the rule is a sentence commences when it's imposed, Unless something else says that, sub three is an example of where it says that. I mean, it, it, it addresses one particular aspect of a sentence. It doesn't address the many, many potential other aspects of a sentence, but, but, but you have a general rule stated in sub one. So where's, where's, where's the ambiguity that you see derived from a silence? Well, it, when you apply 
this court's decision in Lacasse, and you have. So Lacasse creates the ambiguity. It, it certainly, it certainly is a. Is a part. You have any authority for case law being the source of a, an ambiguity within a statute? Have you do, do? Can you point me to a single case where that's happened? I, I would not have that in front of me at this you point. Know, you know why? Because there isn't such a case. That's a that's an that's a that's a an unorthodox statement of law that statutory ambiguity can arise from from case law. So so. So where's the silence? Doesn't sub one actually answer everything? Unless it says otherwise, a sentence commences when it's imposed. I guess it, when you look at the overall framework of sentencing, that it, well, it creates a, an internal incoherence I, I, that defeats show, the scheme of how. punishment. Show me how. I mean, you keep, you keep referring to these general principles of sentencing, but, but, but can, I, can you maybe, particularize it? Maybe it's because sentencing starts when it is imposed, but punishment can occur much before, long time before, no? And, that, and that's part of the, the appellant's submission, is that based on what Chief Justice Lamal said in Sharma, that it does long start, start long before sentence is imposed. So on that theory, there's no incoherence. The sentence starts the day it is imposed, and the sentence has to ensure that there's a minimum one-year prohibition, and there's nothing in that section that precludes the common law credit which Parliament is deemed to know. Like, where is the incoherence? Well, the moment you separate out the idea that a sentence has to reflect a certain kind of punishment and that, that you can think of those two things separately, and some, indeed sometimes you must. Well, the, the, the incoherence would be with, with respect to what was you know, stated as absurd results that can occur, where you're, you have the least and Mr. worst offenders receiving different treatment under the law. Mr. McKee, I don't, just don't know why you're urging us to go down a path of ambiguity and, and incoherence when there's a way to read the sections consistent with the scheme in a way that's completely coherent. I just don't understand your insistence that we have to see this as ambiguous and incoherent when I must confess I'm having difficulty seeing why that's necessarily so. No, and, and I mean, that's, that's fair. Uh, you know, our position is that based on, on common law that, and we, you know, we framed it in our factum as a statutory interpretation as well that the credit can be applied and that I, I say that it's part of the overall scheme of sentences in the framework. Good. Could a proper statutory interpretation brings absurd result? Well, well, yes. There's there's examples. Of <laughs> okay. I guess the yeah. I guess the answer is if it, I mean within within the limits of the judicial role, sometimes there's a problem that you just can't fix, right? And then that that's an up the hill problem. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to leave this building, hang a left. Once the hill levels out, look for the building with a big clock tower and talk to somebody there. Mr. McKee, as I understand it, you said a couple of things that are seemingly inconsistent. Your primary argument is the common law credit applies, but in the alternative, if there's ambiguity, then uh, there's the absurdity that you refer to in the general principles of sentencing and so on. But your primary position is, is as, you, as we went to, uh, there is no ambiguity. The common law credit in the class applies, but otherwise, in the alternative, if there's ambiguity or other submissions. I think that that would be a f fair way to, to frame the argument, yes. Thank you. And when Parliament says nothing, 
there's an enactment, but the parliament says nothing, silence, as you say in your factum. What's the impact of the statutory rule on the common law? Well, when when the when the parliament is silenced, I, mean, I know there's there's you know presumptions that they are they they know you know they know the the legislation, but the, there's also presumptions that they don't intend absurdities at the same time, and that's where I would submit that. The, the the silence on that issue does create the potential for absurdities and that they are you know in, there's there's no intention to perpetuate that that type of situation and that's why i raised the issues of, of absurdities that have been well uh, well put out in in the fact i won't repeat them but there's the situations where you know the least and worst offenders could get different treatment under the law and and, and that sort of thing so that's where I, I, I would say that there's, you know, the, the interplay between those two issues. So I'll, I'll move to my, my conclusion. So thank you very much for, you, for your thoughtful uh, questions. And uh, we're asking this uh, court, the appellant is asking this court to uh, follow the direction that this court gave in Lacasse that pretrial driving suspensions form part of the punishment and must be deducted from prohibition at sentence. Uh, and we submit that that should apply to mandatory orders uh, of sentencing uh, because otherwise unjust uh, sentences would result. Uh, like we said, similarly situated defendants can receive unequal treatment depending if one was on uh, an undertaking not to drive or the other person uh, was not. There, there's different treatments under the law where least and worst offenders could receive different sentences based on credit being applied. And so allowing the appellant's appeal uh, allows an interpretation of the legislative scheme that is consonant with justice and good sense. An interpretation otherwise uh, fails to recognize that the appellant had in fact begun serving her sentence uh, given the driving uh, suspension prior to trial, as was stated uh, by uh, Chief Justice Wagner in, uh, in, in Lacasse, the, the words of the former Chief Justice Lamar in Sharma that in fact the punishment started uh, prior to sentence. And so to do otherwise is just, it's taking a formalist approach, a, sti a strict application of the law that doesn't align with the purpose and principles of sentencing found in the criminal code and jurisprudence. Uh, the pretrial uh, condition not to drive has an overwhelmingly punitive impact on the accused. Uh, the basis of her inability to drive for a period of one year is immaterial, essentially, whether it starts before or after the sentence. The punitive effect on that convicted person is the same whenever it is imposed. And so the appellant submits that to maintain the integrity of the justice system, uh, allowing the application of this credit to the time served and, and giving a, a sentence after conviction that uh, on paper falls below the mandatory minimum, but in essence, the punishment has been served. So sorry, the sentence to be imposed on paper, as you put it, well, on paper, will be below the mandatory minimum? No, no, no. The, well, the, that's what you just said. The sentence from the go forward date would be less than 12 months in this well, case. Sorry, what is it exactly but, you're but You said on paper falls below the mandatory minimum. 
Well, you'll hear, you'll hear submissions that the go-forward date is, is the sentencing date and that if it's below the 12 months, then it falls below. But our position is that we have to take into account the credit and that, in fact, the punishment started long before the conviction and that, in this case, there was 21 months of pretrial uh, okay, so what should, the sen what should the sentence order have been here? Well, the sentence order would have been for 12 months. Okay, so it doesn't fall below the mandatory minimum. It does not fall. Okay, but, all right, all right. But the We're go good. forward... We're good. We're good. Okay. So, Mr. McKee, you are asking us, in fact, to uh, apply what Chief Justice Agnes said in uh, Lacasse when he said the driving prohibition has the same effect regardless of whether it was imposed before or after the respondent was sentenced. So you are asking us to look at the effect of the driving prohibition, and you say given the fact that uh, your client has, uh, was suspended for 20 months or more than 20 months, then you say look at the effect and give her the credit because uh, in fact she was suspended for more than the one year minimum. Yes, that's, that's what we're asking this court to do, uh, to apply that credit. And, uh, you know, there's different cases that, that uh, Chief Justice uh, Wagner looked at in, in Lacasse. There were Sharma, Pellicor, Williams, uh, Bilodeau, uh, that gave different s situations. And uh, the Bilodeau case, for example, uh, it was Justice Gascon at the time, and uh, he, he had referenced how the, the person uh, you know, with the prohibition, uh, the sentence, the pretrial, the, the sentence, you know, custody, that essentially the person would have been uh, prohibited from driving for their entire 20s. And so that called for applying credit uh, because it, it's fair and that's the, just the right thing to do in terms of the overall sentencing framework and, and the scheme of the act. And doesn't it actually promote the Parliament's purpose here because it gets giving credit because it gets the offending driver off the road immediately rather than two years later. Uh, so it, it promotes the Parliament's purpose of having people off the road. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I, I would submit an, an interpretation that allows the credit in this case, in that matter, still aligns with the legislative intent of Parliament to ban drivers for not more, less than one year. Those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. McGuinty. Good morning. I, uh, I gather there, there are some members of the court that are, uh, that are concerned with the idea that um, we can apply the mandatory minimum on the date of sentencing, but just essentially give it credit. And so I want to attack that. Um, at the beginning of my submissions, I want to address that, that idea. And, and part of, Justice Jamal, part of your question when, when you were asking about this this credit-based reduction, um, I think part of that tied into Justice Cassier's question of how do we deal with silence, because the, the code is silent on this issue of credit, uh, was one of the questions. And so, so the Crown disagrees that the code is silent on credit. Um, and 
for a few reasons. The first being Parliament specifically enacted Section 719.3 of the Criminal Code. And in WUST, in the WUST decision, if you, if you turn to tab 12 of, of the Crown's condensed book, um, this court in WUST You'll see that I've outlined paragraph 31, 32 of, of WAST in the, uh, the respondent's condensed book. And the reason I've outlined those two paragraphs is because this court actually, Justice Arbour, when she wrote for, for the majority of the court, she recognized that Parliament, when Parliament enacted Section 719.3, they specifically turned their mind to crediting below a mandatory minimum sentence when an offender spends time in pretrial custody. And so my point is they, they did turn their mind to this issue. And so I think it's wrong to say that Parliament's silent on crediting below a mandatory so minimum. My position is that because they turned their mind to pre-sentence pre imprisonment, they must necessarily have also turned their mind to pre-sentence driving prohibitions? And, but I think, and I think that question raises the, the broader implications of this case, right? Because this case is not only about driving prohibitions, but the trickle-down is going to impact, for example, firearm prohibitions. Um, and so we know that Section 109 of the Criminal Code in certain circumstances requires a judge to impose a, uh, a mandatory firearm prohibition for 10 years, sometimes more. Um, and actually under the bail legislation, section 515, uh, 4.1, the code directs bail judges to impose firearm uh, prohibition orders if they release someone. But can I ask you this? I mean, we're still talking about a discretionary credit. If it's not appropriate, the trial judge will not do it. I guess I'm still not sure that you answered my question. Well, so 719.3 is, speaks to discretionary crediting. Discretionary of all kinds, not just imprisonment, even though it doesn't say anything to that effect. No, but that, and that's, that's the issue the Crown has, is, is that section 719.3 speaks specifically, our, our submission is that Parliament purposely narrowed the application of Section 719.3. Well, uh, in, in, La Casse, in La Casse, there were no provisions prohibiting credit or allowing credit for uh, suspension of license, no? And, I, and, and that's where... Was it wrongly decided? No. And that's, that's where we say that, that this is where the common law ability to credit runs into the brick wall of a mandatory minimum. And that's, I mean, that's what this court said in Justice McLaughlin, right? So, so, so what's significant then in your submission, as I understand it, isn't really the fact that Parliament enacted 719 sub 3, thereby constraining in one aspect the overall common law rule that, that you apply credit. It's the fact of the mandatory minimum. 719 sub 3 doesn't seem to be doing any work then. That's right. I mean, I mean that, that the idea of a discretionary, granting discretionary credit, it does run into the brick wall of mandatory minimum. And, and that's, 
that's what this court has recognized is really the purpose of a mandatory minimum is that parliament is removing judicial discretion if judicial discretion is removed from courts regarding mandatory minimum can you tell me what was the jurisdiction of the majority of the court of appeal to order a stay because when they ordered the stay they were in fact giving credit to madame and I, I recognize that, and mm -hmm. the, the, stay, the stays are difficult. Yeah, uh, but you understand, they, they recognize that the absurdity of the interpretation of the literal uh, meaning of the provision, and they said, yes, it's absurd, but they said, I'm speculate, speculating maybe, but if you say that the discretion was removed when mandatory minimums are concerned, what was the basis for that stay order? It was a wrong decision. The, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that the court was. No, I'm not saying the court of appeal was wrong in staying the execution of the uh, of the um, of the driving prohibition. I think, I think that the, the decision to stay has to be read in context with what the court of appeal found, which was they found that Miss Basque spent 21 months on an unconstitutional release order. Hmm. So, so that that ties directly into their ultimate decision, and so. Um, it's very clear that that's that's how they went about that reasoning. But, but the effect, but the effect was that she was prohibited from driving for 20 months. So what uh, the parliament had in mind when they imposed those minim mandatory minimum in 259 was to take people off the road, to use the expression from uh, Justice Jamal a few minutes ago, to take people off the road. And in fact, she was taken off the road for 20 months. Well. And I take the point, and that's right, that, that, that is the purpose, right? And it's more than just taking people off the road. The way I read the mandatory minimum provisions and the way I read this course jurisprudence is that it's the, it's the added layer of, of deterrence and denunciation that, that, that plays into the, the sentence. So it's not strictly to get someone off the road, but it's to send a message to all Canadians that, and this is what the court says in Ferguson, that, it's to send a message to all Canadians that if you are convicted of this offense, you will face this mandatory punishment. But the, the appellant acknowledges that, says, yes, okay, a mandatory minimum of one year has to be imposed, and yes, it has to be imposed as of the date of sentencing. It seems to me that, at least in argument before us, he acknowledged that. And then the question becomes, is there a basis in it, the silence which he, is that, does it leave the common law open to credit? That's, I guess that's the first question that, that you have to get, get over. And don't, don't lose sight in your answer to the comment that, that in response to one of the exchanges, Justice Jamal pointed to, I think he was pointing to the distinction between sentence and punishment in Wust, in a paragraph of Wust that you actually don't put in your condensed book, paragraph 36, um, that was picked up by Rosenberg and Justice Rosenberg in another case. So where, where are you on that? Is, is, is it possible to respect Ferguson, respect Parliament's direction on mandatory minimum of one year, respect Parliament's direction on it starts as of sentencing? but sort of say, well, Parliament didn't say anything about the credit. So our, our position on, so the answer to your question is, our position is that it, 
we start to tread into the very dangerous territory of amending the criminal code or, or injecting words into the criminal code that are not there. And so what we're stuck with, and, and this goes really to the heart of, of what Chief Justice Lemaire writes in the McIntosh decision, is, is if the court is stuck with unambiguous wording, and what we have right now is... Well, okay, I'm, I, forgive me, I'm going to pile on here, and you, you may have to kind of stick handle between Justice Kassira's very well-framed question and mine, which I will not characterize. But uh, one, of the, one of the really interesting things about coming to this court from a common law uh, jurisdiction is to gain a degree of insight. I'm still very much a student in the Code Civil. And one of the methodological things that you learn, and it's really hard for common law lawyers to get their head around, is that when you look at the civil code, that's it. There is no common law which sits behind the civil code. Everything has to be... Uh, uh, all the um, rules and all the principles and, and complete interpretation is to be found in looking at the provisions and how they logically relate to one another. It's a kind of a closed system. And there's a rigor and an analytical structure that is quite impressive. But it's different in the common law because even though it's called the criminal code, it is not an exhaustive statement of the criminal law. The criminal code operates with the common law and, of course, under the ordinary principles where Parliament has spoken and enacted a statutory provision, it can displace the common law. But where the common law is not displaced expressly or by necessary implication, it continues to operate. And, and I guess what I'm going to suggest to you is that embedded in Justice Kissera's well-framed question is the idea that how is it in your submission that this ge general common law rule concerning giving credit for various forms of punishment that predated the imposition of sentencing, that that common law rule which was recognized, affirmed, and applied in Lacasse, how is that either expressly or by necessary implication displaced by the statutory provisions to which you refer? Well, <coughs> the, so there, there's no doubt there's common law authority to credit for various forms of, of restrictions, of pretrial restrictions, from pretrial custody to driving prohibitions. But from our, and the Crown acknowledges that, that there is, there is case law suggesting that well before section 719.3 of the code was ever enacted, courts were commonly and routinely crediting uh, offenders who spent time in pretrial custody. But to my knowledge, there's no law that has ever said, there's no, there's no common law jurisprudence that's ever said, you can credit such that it runs afoul provisions in the criminal code. And our position is that crediting below the mandatory minimum does run afoul the provisions of the criminal code. Well, well uh, so I'm trying to understand 
kind of the framework of analysis that you're applying in response to my colleague, Justice Rowe. Right, his question is, is, is essentially this. There's a prior common law rule. Where is the statutory derogation? Now, the answer to that surely is not yes, but there's no common law rule that, that, that says that in the face of a mandatory minimum. Surely the answer that you would give is it is the mandatory minimum that is the statutory derogation or the mandatory minimum coupled with the, 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 the rule that sentences operate prospectively or whatever it is. Um, it's, it's not to nuance what the common law rule is. The common law rule is you can credit, right? No, and, and it, no, that, that's the very point that, I, that I'm trying to get to is that you have the common law rule that permits credit. We take no issue with that. But what happens in this case is that the common law rule runs into what I've referred to as a brick wall. The brick wall being section 259.1a and section 719.1. So Parliament is making it unambiguously clear when someone is convicted of impaired driving, in this case their first offence, it's a one-year mandatory minimum driving prohibition. Parliament supplements that with section 719.1 and uses the word commences, a sentence commences on the day it's imposed. So it starts, that's the starting point. And so our position is that the common law ability to credit can only go so far, and then when it runs into these provisions of the code, jurisdiction is lost to credit that much further. And that's what this court has repeatedly recognized is behind mandatory minimums. But, the, it, it, but the, the brick wall, frankly, running into a brick wall, that's a principle of statutory interpretation that I, ha, I have not heard before. In fact, it strikes me it stands in contrast to Rizzo, which says, don't treat text as brick walls. Read beyond the ordinary and grammatical meaning and maybe that's the way in which the brick wall can be can be transcended i guess justice the 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 the, uh, the majority in the in the court of appeal seemed to stop at ordinary and grammatical meaning as if it were a brick wall is that is that a mistaken approach to statutory interpretation if it stops us in our tracks and I think that, that's where, to my mind, I think some of what this case might turn on is whether the majority judgment in McIntosh still stands. Because the majority judgment in McIntosh, that's really what Chief Justice Lemaire gets at. He gets at this idea that when you're faced with clear, ordinary meaning in, in the code, then that, that, and he actually says, you don't even engage in the exercise of statutory interpretation. And so that is really where we, we rely on Justice McIntosh's judgment that, that so when I say the, the idea of a, of a brick wall, it's, it's really what, what Justice McIntosh calls legislative supremacy. But you keep talking about a brick wall, and to me it doesn't make sense. There's no brick wall. So the sentencing judge will impose a 12-month mandatory minimum, and there's a credit. So there is no brick wall because it's imposed and then there's a credit. We do that all the time. How do you divorce pre-trial 
from actual sentencing. For me, it just doesn't make sense. Explain so way, that to me. The way it's divorced is that Section 719.1 says that it starts on the day of sentencing. So that's the wall. I mean, it's not 259.1a alone, right? 259.1a alone just says that a one-year mandatory prohibition has to be ordered. It's Section 719.1 that comes in, and that's what directs the judge to commence the sentencing on that day. So what happened here, because I understand your point, but here, even if they said this, the sentence begins the day it was uh, pronounced, the Court of Appeals said we are going to issue a stay. Whatever the reason was for the prohibition order before the sentencing, they decided to issue a stay because they realized that it did not make sense to force the appellant to do another 12 months after she had done 20 months, it would have been 32 months, as if she had been found guilty, as if she had been uh, convicted for a second offense. So I'm wondering where was the jurisdiction of the Court of Appeal to issue the state? The, so the court, what Chief Justice Richard ultimately did was, was he canvassed two other decisions, one from the Manitoba Court of King's Bench and one from the Manitoba Court of Appeal. And he discusses these decisions, and, and in both of those decisions, credit was, uh, or sorry, the execution of the sentence was stayed by the court, and it ultimately resulted in an offender serving less, and both offenders serving less than the mandatory minimum. And so he picked up on that, uh, essentially the majority picked up on, on that, essentially what, what I would refer to as a common law appellate power. Um, and. and there's no doubt that this court, starting with, I believe, in Prue and many cases since, has endorsed the idea that a court of appeal can stay the execution of a sentence. But obviously, and I, and I understand the discomfort with, with how my position unfolds when it runs into the idea of staying the execution of a sentence. Um, I, I don't think the I don't think the court I don't think the Court of Appeal got it wrong in doing that. I think it, it, was, it was very context-based and... Um, Maybe it's an... You say staying the execution of the sentence can be considered another form of credit. Well, um, I, I didn't view it that way at the Court of Appeal. Uh, when I read the Court of Appeal's judgment, I, I, I viewed what the Court of Appeal did uh, really as remedial. Um, and the, the issue, and, and this... This sort of dives into an incidental issue, but this court in Nassigalawak talked about whether courts have jurisdiction to apply a Section 24-1 charter remedy to go below a mandatory minimum. And the court stopped short at, at diving into an analysis other than to say the court is leaving open the door that in some circumstances that might be justified. And so the Court of Appeal didn't make any reference to 24-1, but as I read it as a whole, it, 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 was, it was a remedial application of the law. Um, can, I under, can I ask you something that in your factum? And I don't know if it was just a throwaway line, or, but I assume there's no throwaway lines in a factum that I'm being asked to read. So paragraph 7. The Crown, without hesitation, acknowledges the compelling fairness concerns that underpin the appellate's central argument before this court. Those concerns are meritorious and worthy of sincere consideration. 
Okay. So let's give them sincere consideration. To what end? Why so, well, I mean, you're, te you're telling us to ignore them. No, I'm not. Because I'm like, we've acknowledged the whole way through at every, at every level. Yeah, you get the acknowledgement, but then you say we have to sincerely consider it. To what end? Well, it has to form part of, of the overall analysis of what we're doing, right? And so part, part of where it could come into play is where the courts repeatedly said, if there's ambiguity in the provisions of the code, then principles of fairness come in. And so, and so the, the, the rules I'm talking about specifically are uh, first the charter values rule that, that holds that if there's ambiguity in the provisions of the code, the interpretation most consistent with charter principles has to be given. And the strict construction rule is very similar in the sense that it requires a reading favoring the accused. And then the idea of absurdity, avoiding absurdity, that only comes up in the exercise if there's ambiguity. But there is no ambiguity. And so we recognize that there are concerns that it would be fundamentally unfair to, to, to require a go-forward prohibition. But our position is that that's Parliament's decision to make. And what we're stuck with is what Parliament has said. We're stuck with the clear, clear words of the criminal code. And so that's where this idea of, of, of sincerely considering the fairness concerns arise. But it, what I say in the factum is that that's not sufficient to displace the clear wording in the criminal code. But I want to get back to you about that. Maybe there isn't an ambiguity, uh, but it's completely the other way around if you start from the premise that the common law rules allow crediting. If you read Lacasse as, as confirming a common law rule that deals specifically with a driving prohibition, albeit not in the context of a mandatory minimum. So if we hold that first thought, that the common law allows crediting, um, you're saying the words of the text um, should be read to disallow crediting. And when I look at the text that you're citing to me, it's not entirely, it, it, it's not clear. It's certainly not clear in the Rosenberg sense in McDonald of saying you should favor the accused in, in a reading. But let's, let's put those aside. You're quoting us to say that the, the uh, 719, it commences. Well, that's a provision of general application. And frankly, a sentence has to commence when it's imposed. I mean, there's no other legal rule that makes any sense. So it, it, to say that you have a sentence that commences on a particular date, but you give credit for what has occurred um, according to the common law rules, to me, doesn't um, offend any uh, reading of that. It, it's perfectly consistent. And then when you move and you say that 719.3 talks uh, about not giving um, uh, or giving custody, pretrial custody, Parliament is speaking to a specific thing. Why would I be wrong to say Parliament knows how to speak on a specific thing? It's directing its mind to custody and it's not speaking and it is not derogating against a common law rule that relates, like Lacasse said, to a driving prohibition. Why doesn't the, doesn't the lack of ambiguity um, cut completely against your position? So our, 
does the lack of ambiguity cut against her? No, you're, 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 at, you're saying to us there's, there's no ambiguity here, just read the rules, uh, re, read the text. And when I look at it and I say, all right, is there an ambiguity here? Um, I, don't, I think reading the text in light of the common law, ability to give credit, I don't see either of those sections as speaking against the common law ability to credit on a driving prohibition. I, I, I don't see that the text commands that. There's no, there's no ambiguity there because the text is directed off to another point um, or the text speaks specifically in 719.3 to something that isn't before us. So that's what I'm saying. I think part of, our, part of the Crown's position that, that it, it is not ambiguous and that it, and that it does create um, a roadblock to crediting below the mandatory minimum really is the way that, that the Crown reads the Court's decision in WUST. I mean, in WUST, Justice Arbour writing for the Court, she, she really anchors the analysis to Section 719.3. And so I, I question if, if there's truly this common law principle that allows credit to go below the mandatory minimum, I, I, I question why the, the analysis was so heavily tied to the, exist, to the existence of 719.3. I mean, that, that, that's how the, the court's analysis in WUST, I think, has to inform how the court is going to read the provisions at issue in this case. Well, perhaps it's you're overstating it to say that the common law rule is to credit below the mandatory minimum. That The common law rule is that crediting applies. That's the common law rule. What I hear you to be saying is that when Parliament stipulates a mandatory minimum, it is to be taken as either expressly or by necessary implication, precluding all, any and all forms of credit, no matter what the offence. So it's actually much broader than this case. It's much broader than this uh, issue. You're saying that that is the necessary implication of any mandatory minimum, is to preclude any form of credit for the common law. Uh, that, that is your position, effectively. Yeah, yeah in effect. And I, and I think, and, and when, you, when you make the point that, that this appeal is going to apply much more broadly than just driving prohibitions. I mean, I, I turned my mind yesterday evening to, to the idea, and I cited in my submissions, the Ontario Court of Appeals decision in a case called Panday, uh, which is sometimes referred to as you, who was a co-accused, Y-U-E. But what took place in Panday was, was that there were three accused who were ultimately convicted of extortion with a firearm. Uh, which carries a mandatory minimum sentence of four years in custody. Now, two of the accused spent 30 months on what the Ontario Court of Appeal called strict bail conditions. Uh, I imagine it, it, it fell some, somewhere close to house arrest, but strict bail conditions. Uh, and another, the other accused spent 36 months on, on these strict conditions. And so when it came to sentencing, they asked to rely on the common law ability, the, the discretionary common ability for judges to give credit for strict bail conditions at sentencing. And the trial judge ultimately credited the accused for the time they spent on strict bail conditions below the mandatory minimum. And when it got to the Ontario Court of Appeal, the, the Court of Appeal sat as a, as a five-panel court, 
in the decision in Panday, and Justice McPherson wrote for a 3-2 majority, but he explained that the common law ability to credit for strict bail conditions essentially ran into th th this roadblock that we've been talking about, that you can't credit below the mandatory minimum. And so the, the Ontario Court of Appeal allowed the Crown's appeal and, and ordered a go-forward four-year mandatory minimum. And they make it clear that, that there is this dichotomy in the criminal code, that, that Parliament... Justin McPherson talks about this idea that what, what Parliament's done is they've, they've created a clear dichotomy between pretrial custody and then release conditions. And so the, the court's ultimate conclusion was you, you can't credit for some form of, of restriction below the mandatory minimum because Section 719 speaks only to custodial sentences and time spent in pretrial custody. And so the reason I raise Pande is that that's a consideration that, that could trickle out from, if the court ultimately decides that credit can be given below a mandatory minimum, that's, that's an inc incidental trickle effect, really, that, that we may end up with we may end up crediting offenders below other mandatory minimums based on various restrictions. Mr. McGinty, um, can, I, can I ask you to help me on what might be just a technical question? If, if, if we're not with you, and if, in fact, uh, we determine that credit can be given, um, and let's assume that the credit exceeds the minimum, well exceeds the, the minimum, um, is it necessary to give a suspension of one day or what kind of order? I'm thinking of, um, of what um, Justice Pacheco um, did in FAM. He gave a one-day suspension, and I'm presuming it's because Section, um, what is it, 259-1 says, shall make an order. But how, how, how does that work if, in fact, the credit reduces below the, the need to make any order going forward I think so if the court goes that direction I, I don't think there's even a need to to give the one day I think because what what you're effective what the court would effectively be doing is is saying in this case for example the 21 months you know every minute of that one year would have been fulfilled so there's not even a need to go with a one-day order and that's the analogy with what you would do in imprisonment if right. the minimum okay thank you I would like to know what we should do. In Lacan's, we put the emphasis on the effect on the accused of a driving prohibition. So, and Chief Justice Wagner said that the driving prohibition has the same effect, regardless of whether it was imposed before or after the respondent was sentenced. So, should we? It, it, is it part of the analysis, the effect on the, uh, on the accused, the driving prohibition? Is it akin to punishment for the period before sentence? Yeah, I, I, I take no issue at all with the idea that, that you know, the effect is the, the same. The, the only real distinction, uh, which I don't think will, will play much of a role in the court's analysis, is is a, a breach of the driving prohibition at, very, at, at the different stages is a different type of offense. I mean, a, a pretrial driving prohibition, driving at that time would be a breach of a, 
release order, mm -hmm. whereas there's a specific offense for driving while on a driving prohibition, a court order prohibition. But no, I, I agree. It's in effect, it's the, the punitive impact, which is what Chief Justice Wagner talks about in the cast. I take no issue with the idea that the effect, the punitive effect is, is identical. And it, it, it would play into the analysis. I, I, I think it has to. It has to play into the analysis. Um, but I, I have to, when it, as it plays in the analysis, I have to return to the, the idea that I, the mandatory minimum removes ju the judicial discretion to credit below the, the one year. But doesn't that distinguish such a case from Pandey? Because if the effect is the same, you're respecting Parliament's will to impose a one-year mandatory minimum sentence of a driving prohibition. You're completely consonant with that. When you take account of strict bail conditions to uh, take somebody below uh, another sentence that's different in kind, uh, you're, you're not respecting Parliament's will. So that's why there's a qualitative difference between those two scenarios. No, and that's fair. That, that, uh, without question, that's a, it's a distinction, but it's, the reason I reference Pandey is, is, is more, I mean, the facts are important, but, but it's, it's the court's analysis that, that at least the way that the Ontario Court of Appeal seems to read it in, in Pandey is that Section 719.3 is, is, is specifically limited to, to jail, to, to pretrial jail. And so our position before this court is that that conclusion also carries with it the idea that Parliament didn't include in 7193, you know, the ability to credit for pretrial custody and and pretrial release conditions, and so, you know, the Crown's relying heavily on this idea that that, that Parliament did turn its mind to this, um, the idea of crediting below a mandatory minimum, and, and but in only in respect of custody. And the Pandy example that you give us will turn on how custody is interpreted under 7193. But the question I, I have for you, it relates to why was this a bail condition in the first place? Like how does this arise um, in your jurisdiction uh, that there is, a that this happened? Yeah, no, and look, I, uh, this, this came up at the Court of Appeal, uh, and I, you know, the position that, that I took at the Court of Appeal is the same I take today, which was, uh, it should never have been imposed. Um, it was not an appropriate release condition. It, it was not consistent with Zora or with Antic. Um, I, I, and I don't back down from that position at all. It's, it's, um, it's an unfortunate reality of, of the case we have, but it, it was a clear concession that the Crown made at the Court of Appeal, and I, I make it again today that it was not an appropriate condition. It should not have been there in the first place. But doesn't that sort of uh, speak a little bit more than to, and thank you for that explanation, um, but doesn't that also speak to the unfairness aspect and maybe why there's a stay in this case? I mean, I think there is this notion that um, to serve or, or, or to be subject to a 21-month driving prohibition and then another a year later, what's the purpose of the other year later uh, after a sentence has been given if it's already been served. Right, I think, so I guess your question, 
can relate to two different examples. I mean, we, we may have an example where, well, no, not an example, but in this case where it should never have been imposed. And I think that the, the staying, staying the execution of the sentence, as I read the Court of Appeals decision, um, is tightly, it's tightly tied to that, that unfairness. And on, in another example, let's say we have uh, really a justified pretrial release order that imposes upon someone a, a, a driving prohibition. Um, you know, there, there's the purpose at the time of the, the bail release order being put in place is for a pretrial driving prohibition would be obviously to, pre to prevent reoffending and, and protect the public. But what we know from Lacasse is that the effect is the exact same whether it's imposed post-sentencing or prior to sentencing, except for that one caveat that I raised earlier about the different prohibitions. And so, so your, your question is, what is the purpose of imposing the go-forward sentence? And so one is that it, it does, it, it remains consistent with, the, with the, the design of mandatory minimums, which is to, to deter and denounce the behavior. But I think the issue of getting into to purpose is that it's, is that Parliament doesn't necessarily give us the purpose, but what they tell us is that it starts on the day it's imposed. And, I, and so I have to return to that, is that the court might think, well, there is no purpose because, it's, because the person's already served that amount of time, but that doesn't detract or negate the fact that Parliament's enacted 7191 and said that it commences that day. What do we do with paragraph 22 in West, where uh, Justice Arbour tells us that uh, it's important to interpret legislation, which, in, like in this case, deals with mandatory minimum sentences in a matter that is consistent with general principles of sentencing and that does not offend the integrity of the criminal justice system? So I guess it's piggybacking up on um, Justice um, Martin's question about the absurdity of it. How do you deal with that? So, the, the idea of absurdity, if I, if I can ask the court to turn to tab three uh, of the condensed book, because, uh, f first of all, I, I'm in complete agreement that the Crown's position may, in some circumstances, lead to very unfair results, or, or what Justice French called an absurd result. And so I'm not hiding behind that. But the point that Chief Justice Lemaire makes in McIntosh... Well, before you go there, I mean, doesn't, doesn't the next line in Woost help you? This is, an entire, this is entirely possible in this case, and in my view, such an approach reflects the intention of Parliament that all sentences be administered consistently except to the limited extent required to give effect to a mandatory minimum. And so, so that, that next portion you just read, Justice Brown, is, is exactly why I said earlier if the court goes down the, the direction that the appellant wants the court to go down to, I sincerely question why the analysis in West was so tightly tied to 719.3. Because effectively, the, appellant, the appellant's position, if it's applied, if you, if you take it to its logical conclusion, it's that we don't need 719.3. And West never needed to be tied to 719.3. So, 
that, so that, that's my response to Justice Brown, your question, but I want to return to your question, um, which was, you know, how do we deal with this idea that this can produce these, these absurd or unintended consequences? And, and so that's where I say, I think a question that's pending in this appeal is, does the majority judgment in McIntosh stand? Because in McIntosh, Justice LaMare, uh, Chief Justice LaMare, at, at first at paragraph 34, at the very end of paragraph 34, makes a statement that the fact that a provision gives rise to, rise to absurd results is not, in my opinion, sufficient to declare it ambiguous and then embark on a broad-ranging interpretive analysis. And then he goes on to reject at paragraph 36 this idea that there is an absurdity approach. And so the absurdity comes into play if the court says these provisions are ambiguous. So if the court says these provisions are ambiguous, then I concede, at the out I concede if there's ambiguity, then the, the interpretation the appellant's asking for has to, has to prevail. Because there are three rules of statutory interpretation that, that essentially open the door for the court to go that way, which is the charter values rule, the strict construction rule, and then the need to avoid absurd results. Can, can you explain to me, and it's a genuine question, how these, this principle lines up with Rizzo? Because I thought Rizzo said, and I'm prepared to be corrected, that even where the ordinary and grammatical sense of the text is clear, that one goes further, the principles of statutory interpretation, that's not the end of the discussion. And that Rizzo recognized that the legislature does not intend to produce absurd consequences. And thus, in divining intent, even where the ordinary and grammatical sense is clear, you do make this absurdity inquiry. Rizzo decided after Macintosh. I'm just wondering, maybe I'm wrong, it strikes me that you still have to ask yourself whether the interpretation that yeah. is, seems plain defeats the purpose of the statute or renders some aspect of it futile, as Rizzo directed. Justice Kaiser, I, so I, you know, in working on this appeal, both the Court of Appeal and here, you know, that's something I struggled with, was, was has the majority in McIntosh essentially been, you know, overruled or, or has it been varied? Because Justice McLaughlin writes the, the dissenting opinion in McIntosh, and she does take that much more nuanced approach where she says, just looking at the, wor the words is not enough, and she, she, she dives a lot deeper and comes to the opposite conclusion. But... Again, if, if we go to tab three of the condensed book at, at page seven, uh, starting at page seven are, are, are two decisions that, that post-date Rizzo. So paragraph 26, Justice Iacobucci in, in, in Bell Express View writes, as such, where a statute is unambiguous, courts must give effect to the clearly expressed legislative intent and avoid using the charter to achieve a different result. That strikes me, so I'm cutting you off, that's not fair of me, but just so I get my question, that strikes me as a slightly different point. Where 
there's no doubt what legislative intent is, then you don't need to go down a, down a different track. But where, in so doing, you, 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 you've got to adopt this, the Rizzo approach that invites you to go beyond the text to divine intent. That, that's, that's what I'm asking. So it doesn't strike me as what Justice Iacobucci said in Bell Expressview is contrary to Rizzo at all. It's, it's in the case that he was dealing with, it was whether the, and this might be your position in our case too, that, that the, the words used and legislative intent, they just line up so tightly, there's no room for anything else. But it, it doesn't put an end to, to the absurdity inquiry as part of the, the more general way of defining or de deciding what intent is. I think the way I read, you know, what Justice Iacobucci says in Bell Express View and then what Chief Justice Lemaire says in McIntosh and then there's, a, there's another quote from Justice Sharon and Rogers, which is page eight, um, which is just a reiteration of what Justice Iacobucci said. The, the way I read it is that I, as I interpret what the court has said is that where there isn't ambiguity, then the, the court's presumed, or, uh, parliament's presumed to basically mean what it says. And so, and, and that's, that's, that is what, our, what, what we hinge our position on, which is parliament means what it says, and what it says is a mandatory minimum driving prohibition. I mean, I, I read the, 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 that short passage from what Justice Iacobucci wrote in Bell Express View as an admonition as to the proper usage of charter values in the uh, methodology of statutory interpretation. In other words, don't come into court and make an argument that a charter value points towards one result and say that that overwhelms Parliament's intent, because that would be a complete misuse of charter values as opposed to a charter right. So you have to use charter values in the limited way in which the methodology allows, which is to say where there is ambiguity and you have choices between two alternative interpretations, the one which accords most fully with charter values is advantaged thereby. And, and that's all that I see. It's an important statement, but I, I, I don't see it as being any broader than that. No, I agree, I agree with the way you read it. Would you also agree, I mean, um, would you agree that the majority judgment of the Court of Appeal is hardly a peon to textualism? Um, I mean, for 16 paragraphs, starting at paragraph 26, um, Rizzo was applied, the statutory, statutory context and scheme is thoroughly and sensitively examined. Yeah, so, so what, what Chief Justice Richard does, right, is, is he does, he looks a lot deeper than, than just the words. What he does is he says, let's look at where Parliament has decided to enact mandatory minimums uh, for, for, for driving, alcohol-related driving offenses or, or dr drug 
drug-impaired driving. And the conclusion he gets to is that the offenses where you will, absent exceptional circumstances, see uh, a, a jail sentence imposed, for example, impaired driving causing death or impaired causing bodily harm, Parliament has not put in mandatory driving prohibitions because, as Chief Justice Richard says, the offender, absent exceptional circumstances, will, will serve a period of custody. And then he looks at the ones that don't generally attract jail sentences like simple impaired driving. And then they do. So he, he does look at you know, what was Parliament's intent here. And in the, in the time I have, like 10 minutes left, in that time I want to I want to touch on this idea that... Can I ask you about McIntosh, though, again, because you yeah. asked whether you've sort of thrown into the mix whether McIntosh has been effectively overruled or departed from. But, you know, principles of statutory interpretation are always sort of in balance. It's not applying one rule. You have to look at all the relevant rules. And if you look at what Justice, Chief Justice Lemaire cites in paragraph 18, uh, cites Maxwell on the interpretation of statutes, 1969, where the language of the statute is plain admits of any one meaning, the task of interpretation does not arise. Well, I think now we would probably, that was 27 years ago, now citing 1969 Maxwell, now we would probably say that the task of interpretation always arises. That's Justice Kazira's point about Rizzo and the modern rule. He then cites Justice Lafare, 1982, uh, which is that the legislature can have reprehensible results, and I don't think we'd quarrel with that and then some other uh, English authorities from the House of Lords in 1936. And so it's a question of looking at the balance in the various principles and what is cited as authority. And I think it may be, it may be um, putting too much at stake to say, has Macintosh been effectively overruled? I think it's more a question of the, the balance of the interpretive principles that we would invoke today and the authorities that we would cite in support of them. No, I agree with that. And it's not... And it's not that I'm saying that, that Macintosh as a whole has been, has been completely overruled. I, and perhaps the way I should have said it is that subsequent cases, subsequent cases have, have definitely complemented what was said in, in Macintosh and, and have sort of stretched out the need to go a bit further. Um, and so at, at paragraph 18, as you just pointed out, when the comments made that the task of interpretation does not arise, um, I think that has been stretched out over the last two and a half decades, um, that more is required. And, um, and that's why a subset of my position is to, to look at intent, parliamentary intent. And so the, the, to the Crown, the biggest piece of parliamentary intent is Parliament's decision to specifically limit Section 719.3. And as I said earlier, the appellant's position, if you take it to its logical conclusion, is that 7193 really effectively is, is meaningless. Uh, and, and again, what the, court, the court's analysis in WUST, if you take the appellant's position, then the court in WUST must have been wrong to, to rely so heavily on Section 7193. But WAST was a custody-based case. I mean, I guess that's what, what 
um, I, I have trouble understanding your argument. 719.3 speaks to custody. It doesn't speak to driving prohibitions. It doesn't speak to a general category of custody and other penalties, custody and other punishments. It's, it's a specific provision, textually, purpose, context, all of these. It's specific. And so I still don't understand why it derogates from a common law rule that would allow a different rule um, for things that aren't custody. Well, I, I think it's because it, 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 it really renders Section 719.3 in effect meaningless because what, what, if the court goes that direction, what the, what the court would be saying is that if a pretrial restriction of any kind, whether it be a complete deprivation of liberty or, or driving prohibition, if a pretrial restriction is identical to what the offender will ultimately serve after sentencing, then credit has to be given and it can go below the mandatory minimum. But that's not what Parliament said. Parliament restricts the 719.3 to, to custody. And, and but it, it restricts it to custody because it was legislating in respect of custody. It was derogating from the common law in respect to custody. It was providing a formula for credit in 719.3 as well, right? I mean, it was doing all those things, but based only in custody. So it's speaking to that specific um, type of punishment. It's but just to complete, because I'm sensitive to what Justice Martin said. It, it hinges on, you have to connect your point to the parliament turned its mind to argument that you make fully in your factum. And that's, that's where I guess it gets a little difficult because, how do you say, you know, the, the devil himself knoweth not the thought of man. Like, who knows what Parliament turned its mind to? Well, all we know is what they said. What? And if they, they didn't speak to crediting, what, what, you're inviting us to, to go a further step. And I, but I think you need both. I don't think you can just sort of say 719.3, dead letter. I think you have to say because Parliament. Well, my, my, I mean, I took it from your factum that the analysis is not whether 719 sub 3 derogates from the common law, but that 719 sub 3 is a relevant enactment within the meaning of 17, 719 sub 1 and therefore a derogation from the general rule that a sentence commences when it is imposed. And, 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 and I mean, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but I took the significance of your argument that the court in Wust wouldn't have had to have had regard to 17.9 sub, 719 sub 3 on the appellant's theory of the case as signifying that, well, if 17, if 719 sub 1 doesn't displace the common law, then it wouldn't have been necessary to have 719 sub 3. That, that's, exa okay. that's exactly why, and that's exactly why I, I, I've said a few times today that the, if the appellant's position is accepted, then I, you have to question why Wust was so tightly tied to 719.3. But Justice Kazer, I, wa I want to return to your, your question about, you know, how, how just be, because Parliament was silent on it, how do we find this idea of intent? And one that I rely on in my submissions is 
from the construction of statutes text, which is, it's, there's a quote that I <clears throat> have at tab six of my condensed book, and it's this idea of the presumption of knowledge. That when, when Parliament enacts, for example, 719.1 and 719.3, that they're presumed to know the relevant facts surrounding that legislation. And so I'm asking the court to infer that Parliament surely knew some offenders would spend time on a pretrial driving prohibition. And despite that presumed knowledge, or what I say is presumed knowledge, they, they didn't create any enactment such as 719.3. And again, and I, a point that I made earlier is that in WUST, this court, Justice Arbour accepted that Parliament was specifically, they, they did specifically turn their mind to crediting below a mandatory minimum. And so I, the point I'm trying to make is if they've turned their mind to crediting below one form of a mandatory minimum, then my position is that it does speak volumes and it is telling that they did not enact an equivalent to apply to other forms of prohibitions. And what one of the things the Ontario Court of Appeal recognizes in, in the Panday decision is that there's a clear dichotomy where, where Parliament has essentially drawn a line in the sand for pretrial custody and then other forms of release or restrictions at release. And so that that, my submission is that it, it does show Parliament's intent, that they, they, they never wished for credit to be given below the mandatory minimum. And the final point I'll make is, is really is, I understand the attractiveness of, or the temptation to get to the appellant's desired result, but the Crown's perspective is that it does amount to essentially amending or injecting words into the criminal code that are not there. Subject to any All right. questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. It is a Frank. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. The suggestion uh, before the court this morning that Credit can be granted because Parliament did not speak against the common law practice of crediting. Is in danger of reversing the order of laws in Canada under our constitutional democracy and the rule of law. Common law rules apply unless they are limited by Parliament. This court has the power to review legislation pursuant to charter, pursuant to the constitution. But it does not have the power to create common law rules absent a charter application that interfere with or supersede or create exceptions to positive laws created by parliament. And so the difficulty with saying we can credit because when parliament created this mandatory minimum, it didn't say anything against the common law power of credit is elevating the common law rule above the power of parliament to create limits. And that, that was spoken to, that was considered in another way in Nazigalowak by this court. Uh, in that case, uh, specifically what was being considered was, was the effect of police violence on the offender. 
with or without a charter exception, do we need a charter application to give credit for this behavior? For the, uh, to quote some members of the bench this morning, the, the punishment uh, that was outside of the sentence that this offender endured. And, and at, at paragraph 55 in Nazigaloak, the crux of the decision is this. Yes, there is a common law power, regardless of the charter, to give credit to an offender for all kinds of things that can affect sentencing. And this is interesting because this, uh, the police violence in Nazigaloak goes outside uh, of, the, of the regular rules of sentencing. Uh, you know, the serious, seriousness of the offense, the degree of responsibility of the offender, that's, that's the rule of sentencing. Police violence is outside of that. And, and common law rules have accepted that police violence is something that can be considered, that can be credited against an otherwise fair sentence to the offender, but it is limited by the mandatory minimum. And without a charter challenge to that mandatory minimum, the discretion of the common law powers of this court or any court is limited. And to read in an exception based on principles of common law that is not allowed for by parliament is reversing that order of loss. There has been some discussion this morning by this court about, well, what do we do with the unfairness? What do we do with the unfairness? There is a pathway to deal with that unfairness. That pathway is a charter, is a charter application. This court created a pathway in NUR to analyze the unfairness of any law and to properly and through the I, I, well, I, I find it extraordinary that you, you seem to say that the, 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 the protections under the Charter are coextensive with an amorphous sense of unfairness. That really is a, a, a huge doctrinal statement. Well, no, it's just Section 7 of the Charter. If, if, it, if if a sentencing provision offends Section 7 of the Charter... And do does it offend Section 7? And does it offend Section 7 if it is unfair? Well, and that, and that makes my point further, which is that if this court's only power to review, to read down, to read in exceptions to legislation is through a Charter application, then it shouldn't be allowed to do through a side window no, we'll just we'll just we'll just we'll just throw standard. it we'll just throw it all into section seven. I mean, I would have no, thought I would have thought that the attorney general of Alberta would say, actually, maybe it's not something the court can fix. Maybe it requires a legislative amendment. I mean, we're not we're not a cure all here. Um, we don't fix just anything. No, that and and that brings to my point. It has to rise to the level of a charter breach in order for this court to take action. And, and you say it decision. rises to that level if it's unfair. No, that's not, that's not my point at all. My point is it can't. It, it can't, you, this court cannot read in an exception just because something is unfair. But perhaps that's the my, framing that of the you, question you've reversed, is- You've reversed the meaning of what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is this court cannot read in an exception to a minimum just because it's unfair. Ms. Frank, perhaps the framing of the question is part of the uh, the answer because I don't think anybody would say that uh, we can expand the common law to derogate from a statute but that actually puts the question backwards uh, the question is whether the statute is derogated from the common law that seems to me to be the sort of the order of analysis so you start with the common law and then say 
as a matter of statutory interpretation, has this been derogated from? Yes, and that's fair. And so the rule of common law created in Lacasse did not run up against any statutory limit. So there's no impediment to that, to that common law created in Lacasse. Yes, Thank you. there should be credit for time served until it hits a minimum. Just like in Nazigalu Act, there should be credit for police violence that affected this offender until it runs into a mandatory minimum. All right. There should. Your time is up. I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any reply? Thank you, uh, Chief Justice, and thank you, Justices of the Court, uh, for hearing uh, our appeal uh, today. And I thank as well the, uh, the, the, the prosecution on this case, who've been uh, more than uh, ideal to deal with, as we've been twice now uh, before uh, different courts. And uh, I appreciate his comments and his sincerity. I, I would just close with, uh, with saying, Chief Justice and Justices, that uh, it comes down to, to, to fairness and maintaining the integrity of the justice system. And I think that when we apply the, the common law principles from, from Lacasse, if we run into this legislation that, uh, you know, uh, that is a so-called roadblock, we can apply statutory principles. Uh, coming back to presumption, the presumption of knowledge that was raised, there's also the presumption that Parliament uh, you know, uh, uh, wishes to avoid uh, in, inco incoherent or you know, inconsistent with uh, uh, results that, that create absurdities. And, and I believe that this is just a case where we can apply the credit. We can still maintain uh, Parliament's intention with respect to the mandatory minimums. And it's, it's a, uh, an interpretation that is favorable to the accused in this place, but is still following the legislative intent. So I appreciate uh, the time today to present our case. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you all for your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.